We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app you're listening to kcbs in depth really in order to find quality care you often have to be on a wait list that's months long the people places and issues the bay area is talking about the aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule roe for so long they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up in this case there very well may be charges that are appropriate for example trying to obstruct an official proceeding of congress right that is unlawful this is kcbs in depth Is the internet broken? It's a feeling that's been growing stronger for years now, as hate speech runs rampant across social media platforms, and internet companies resort to ever more invasive methods of tracking users to monetize their data. Well, if the internet is broken, there's been plenty of possible solutions that have been put forward to fix it. Maybe we should add more regulations or break up the tech giants. But today's guest, argues that none of those solutions get at the actual root of the problem, which is that the internet that we have today is a business. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Menconi. Today in the program, we're going to be hearing about a different vision for the internet's future, a vision where we don't just do a better job of regulating private internet companies, but instead get rid of them and create public institutions to take their place. It's the vision of Ben Tarnoff, a writer and a co-founder of Logic Magazine, and his new book, where he lays it all out, is Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. Ben Tarnoff, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So uh, I think it's fair to say that this vision that we're going to be talking about here is going to go quite a bit farther than uh, a lot of our listeners would have considered as, you know, possibilities for the internet. And, uh, you know, perhaps even by the end of this conversation, uh, they won't be convinced that it's a direction that we should go in. But it, it seems like a big part of your goal in writing this book is to simply get more people to confront the possibility of a radically changed internet. Uh, you talk a lot about wanting to expand our imagination of what the internet could be. And um, uh, what maybe a good way to get at how different the internet could be is to start with what it's been, you know, it's, it's history. Because as you write in your book, uh, the internet started out as a government project. Yeah, that's right, Keith. And, you know, as you point out, there's a lot of arguments in my book, I don't expect everyone to agree with all of them. But the hope of providing the history, because the book is primarily a history of how the internet came to be in its present form is to denaturalize it, 
to show people that there's nothing inevitable about the form that it takes. It's actually a series of choices, a series of contingencies that could have gone a different way. As you pointed out, the origin point of the internet is in the mid-1970s with the U.S. military. And at that point, the U.S. military is funding a variety of ventures in computing and computer networking, and its researchers come up with the first internet protocol, which is a set of rules for how computers can communicate. And the pretext for this undertaking is the desire to bring computing power into the battlefield. The idea with this internet protocol is that it would make it possible for computer networks of very different kinds to communicate and thus interconnect to form an internetwork that would allow computing power, say from a mainframe in Northern Virginia, to be projected into the battlefield, say a Jeep somewhere in Vietnam. Yeah, and, and, and so engaging with that history that you're laying out, you know, I, I, I think, I think I, we all have a vague sense of the internet starting uh, as, as a military program, but really we're talking about the first 25 years where the internet is owned and operated essentially by the government and the decision to hand it over to private companies uh, was a decision and uh, something that happened in the mid-90s. And uh, you suggest that there are other versions of that handover that could have happened. Yeah, that's correct. So to bring the history kind of up to the point of privatization, as I mentioned, the Internet Protocol emerges in the mid-70s, and then it is actually used by the Pentagon to interconnect various networks to form what they call the Internet. So the Internet as a place is born really in the mid-1980s. Over the subsequent years, it retains federal ownership, but becomes civilianized. It starts to be used primarily by civilian researchers, folks like professors at university campuses all around the country. And by the early 1990s, it's actually under the leadership of the National Science Foundation, which is a federal agency tasked with supporting basic research. And the NSF faces a challenge in the early 1990s, which is that demand to get on the internet is growing but the capacity is not. So they decide to accelerate plans for privatizing the internet, which was the plan all along, but the time frame gets pushed up. And as part of that accelerated privatization, telecom starts to play a very aggressive lobbying role. And the industry ensures that privatization, when it occurs, as it begins in, in the mid-1990s, takes a particularly extreme form. The internet is a technology that was built with billions and billions of dollars of public investment. It was patiently developed over the course of decades by the federal government. And then in 1995, the federal government hands the internet over to the private sector with no compensation no conditions over how the internet could develop, no rules for how these new telecoms could interconnect with one another. And to my mind, the particularly extreme form that privatization took in 1995 has laid the groundwork for the various problems that plague the contemporary internet. Yeah, well, let's get into those problems now. Uh, just reminding listeners, once again, we are speaking with author Ben Tarnoff, uh, whose new book is Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. And 
big part of the book is uh, talking about solutions. But let's start with those problems, as you're hinting at right there. I, I, I imagine maybe some of our listeners would be thinking, you know, overall, maybe Internet doesn't do exactly what I want it to do. But certainly it's made shopping easier over the past couple of years. It's made finding answers to my questions easier over the past uh, couple of years. So what, in your view, are the big problems with the Internet today? Well, let's start at the bottom of the stack with the so-called pipes of the internet, the physical infrastructure of the internet. And here we can see that privatization in 1995, the terms of privatization, and a series of subsequent deregulatory moves over the course of the 90s and early 2000s have created a situation where Americans pay some of the highest rates in the world for broadband in exchange for some of the worst service. On average, Americans monthly internet bill is higher than people in Europe or Asia. In return, we receive speeds that rank 14th in the world below countries like Hungary and Thailand. Now, why is this the case? Well, this is, there is a highly, highly concentrated market for internet service in the United States. Just four companies control 76% of all internet subscriptions, and they actively collaborate to avoid competing with one another. And consumers know this. I mean, Comcast, take one example, is regularly chosen as the most hated company in America. I believe it. I certainly despise it, right? I mean, no one has had a good experience with Comcast. And I you know, face this quite recently. People generally only have one choice, right? It's not like there's a lot of other alternatives that they can pick. So that is one of the legacies of privatization and how privatization was conducted is pitiful broadband service in the United States. Now, as we move up the stack to the application layer of the internet, to the so-called platforms, there's a whole host of other problems. And here the problems become more complex and more various. And we can get into some of them, but just to, to cite a handful of the kind that have been consuming a lot of oxygen in, in the public conversation recently. We find the annihilation of our privacy. We find the proliferation of bigotry and conspiracism through social media. Uh, we find the exploitation of app-based workers such as Uber drivers. Uh, we, there's all sorts of different problems that we could identify at this upper floor of the internet. And in the book, I tried to draw the connection to show folks how privatization has contributed, has provided the kind of foundation for these various problems to develop. Yeah. Well, real quick, just for anybody who might be just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, we're considering what a public internet might look like, considering that vision from author Ben Tarnoff, whose new book is Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. And so hearing those problems that you were laying out right there, I think what uh, a lot of folks, whether we're talking about political leaders or average Americans, the sorts of solutions that readily come to our minds are solutions like, well, maybe we need to break up the big tech firms. Maybe we need more competition or we might think... Uh, maybe regulations would help. Maybe we should have some kind of speech regulation that would prevent the, the, the these pervasive hate speech, this problem of misinformation on these social media platforms, you know, mitigate those problems to some degree. You're suggesting that competition regulation really won't do the trick. Uh, why is that? 
Well, I think there's a role for regulation, and I think there's a role for the anti-monopoly toolkit, which can include breaking up big firms. It can also include banning mergers and acquisitions, enforcing things like interoperability. But I don't think either approach really reaches the root of the problem. In my analysis, the root of the problem is not that markets are insufficiently competitive or firms insufficiently regulated. The problem is the market itself. And the solution, therefore, is to shrink the space of the market, to diminish the power of the profit motive, and to develop publicly and cooperatively owned alternatives that can encode the practices of democratic control so that ordinary people in collective institutions can determine how the internet runs. Now, what does that mean? That sounds a bit abstract. I'll give you an example of Facebook, right? Facebook is probably the company that is most in the public eye when we think about criticism of the contemporary internet. And as we all know, Facebook contributes quite materially to the circulation of bigotry, conspiratorial thinking, hate speech, whatever you want to call it, whatever your preferred term is. The reason that Facebook contributes to the proliferation of this content is because it's profitable to do so. We know that Facebook has been built from the ground up to maximize user engagement because the more engagement that it can engender among its users, the more data it can manufacture about them, and that data can in turn be applied to the task of targeted advertising, which makes Facebook money. This is a very well understood chain of links by journalists, even by researchers within Facebook itself. Now, this imperative to maximize user engagement at all costs, which is expressed in the composition of the algorithms that govern Facebook itself, came out of a period of competition. It came out of a period where Facebook was a relatively smaller firm. It was a startup. It was trying to grow as fast as possible. It was trying to grab as much market share as possible. And in order to do so, it encoded this imperative to maximize user engagement into its everyday operations. So the question is, would we be better off if there were 10 Facebooks, if there were a more competitive market for social media services. I think Which is what we, we might get if we it, had antitrust legislation that broke up, the, broke up the firm. Precisely. And I don't want to caricature anti-monopoly because anti-monopoly folks often have a very sophisticated analysis of this. They're not purely saying, just break them up. They have a lot of other interventions they'd like as well. But if you think that the core problem is a lack of competition, in the case of social media, adding more competition is not going to do anything about the problems that most people care about. In fact, it could make those problems worse. Because there's going to be more competition uh, and perhaps even more uh, uh, strenuous business practices to try to pursue those eyeballs. So maybe they would have even uh, an incentive to have even more incendiary posts that are promoted on the platform. Precisely. You know, as profit margins thin under competitive pressures, that can lead to behaviors that can be even more antisocial, even more socially destructive. You know, it's not as if they're competing to lower a price for the benefit of the consumer. They're competing to manufacture more data about you. And in order to do so, they need to maximize user engagement. So a more competitive environment for social media could very well contribute to some of the socially destructive dynamics that we've already been seeing in recent years. 
speaking with author Ben Tarnoff. So if you take a dim view of the corporate internet, what is the alternative? I'm glad you asked. So if we think of (laughs) privatization as, to my mind, the root of the various problems that plague the modern internet, and this privatization has a history, it's a process, it develops in a particular way, and it looks different at the bottom of the stack as at the top of the stack. To my mind, the solution is deprivatization. And what does deprivatization mean? Well, deprivatization means creating an internet where people and not profit rule. Okay, well, what does that actually mean concretely? One of the problems with an internet that is organized around the principle of profit maximization is that it locks in certain behaviors. We've talked about Facebook and how it needs to maximize user engagement. Sure, you can add some regulations around that. You can do some anti-monopoly interventions, but there's a kind of whack-a-mole quality because so long as profit is the organizing principle, they're going to have to find some way to engage in practices that will have deleterious social consequences. So what if we could create structures that diminish the power of the profit motive, that are organized to serve social need rather than investors, rather than shareholders? Now, that sounds perhaps to some listeners a bit utopian, but we actually have existing examples of such institutions. One of the examples that I talk about in the book are so-called community networks. These are publicly owned and cooperatively owned local broadband networks that exist in the United States. In fact, there are more than 900 communities that are currently served by such networks. And unlike, say, the Comcast or the AT&T or the Charter, these networks are able to prioritize social needs, such as universal connectivity, The research has shown that they tend to provide better service at lower cost than their corporate counterparts. And crucially, they enable members of the community to participate in decisions that directly affect them regarding how the infrastructure is deployed. Cooperatively owned networks, for to take one example, hold regular democratic elections for their board. So if you're a member of the cooperative, you're a user of the network, you get to elect the people who are going to run the network. So that is what makes me particularly optimistic about community networks. Not only do they provide better service, but they encode democratic principles into their everyday operation. So interesting proposal right there. Community networks, uh, something run at the local level. And you also draw the analogy of utilities that in some places, uh, whether we're talking about power generation or distribution, we've seen local models of that developed as well. There's some consideration of that uh, here in the Bay Area at the moment, uh, too. So certainly uh, this idea of making the the, uh, internet service providers along the lines more similar to a uh, public utility that's something that uh, people have considered, talked a lot about. It's, it's something that maybe we can wrap our heads around um, a little bit. I, I think the maybe more abstract uh, problem, the maybe the problem that's more difficult for us to wrap around our heads, is the actual uh, websites, the actual apps that are on the Internet. How do those be taken out of the uh, private sphere and put into the public sphere? How do you make a 
public Twitter or a public Facebook? That's a great question. And I think part of the difficulty here is inherent to the structure that we're describing. In other words, as we move up the stack of the internet from the pipes to the so-called platforms, we encounter a realm of the internet that is much more complex, right? Facebook is much more complex technically than Comcast. And it's, it's also a more diverse realm of the internet. Facebook is much more different than Amazon in its technical composition than Comcast is from AT&T. So what this means practically is that our strategies for deprivatization must adapt to that complexity and to that diversity. We have to take a variety of different approaches. In the book, I draw inspiration from a series of experiments that have been conducted in various communities like the platform cooperativism community, which is developing worker-owned app-based services. So if you can think, for instance, of a worker-owned Uber, there are examples of these types of experiments developing. I also point to the decentralized web community where people are developing projects, for instance, like Mastodon, an open source software project that enables people to run independent social media sites that can be cooperatively governed. For instance, think about a social media site where the content moderation policy was determined democratically by its members. These sites in turn can be federated with one another to form broader social media networks, a bit like how email works on an interoperability principle. So it's safe to say that these various experiments are not as mature as the community network model that exists down the stack. But nonetheless, I think we can draw inspiration from them to try to visualize, to try to imagine what an internet for the people might look like. Want to reintroduce you one last time. This is KCBS in depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today we're talking about what's wrong with the internet and why a public option might hold some solutions. Hearing about it from author Ben Tarnoff, whose new book is Internet for the People The Fight for Our Digital Future. So, I'm sure, a lot of our listeners would be coming at this conversation with a little bit less skepticism about the role of the market than you were bringing into it, you know. And so to them, it might strike, uh, your, your your view might strike them, strike them as a little bit pessimistic uh, that, you know, we can't find a way to regulate uh, a market system into giving us what we need. And that's, in, in a lot of ways, that's been the project of uh, American uh, governance for the last century or so. We think about uh, FDR and the New Deal. And uh, the story that I think a lot of us has, have received is that, you know, we, we found a way to make capitalism uh, sand off the rough edges, make it work better for the average American, uh, make it a little bit uh, more democratic, get rid of some of the excesses. Why are you not hopeful that when it comes to the Internet, we'll be able to carry out a similar project? That's a great question, Keith. And I think where this takes us inevitably is beyond the internet, mm. right? It's hard to talk about the internet without talking about everything else because the internet is entangled with everything else. I think I don't share the view that we have managed to, as you put it, round off the rough edges of capitalism and create a humane society. I think we live in an extremely cruel society. And I could cite a litany of statistics that illustrate that cruelty, and I don't want to bore our listeners, but I think that sentiment is actually broadly felt. People may not attribute it to capitalism, but there is, in fact, widespread discontent about 
decades of flat and declining wages, of life expectancy that is now beginning to fall, of severe social isolation, of you know things like student debt and medical bankruptcy. By the standards of the advanced capitalist world, the United States, I think, has done a singularly poor job of creating an economy that provides a measure of dignity for all of its citizens. So I, my own views of the, the deficiencies and indeed the depredations of a capitalist model are derived from my analysis of society as a whole. I think we see it operate within the realm of the internet, but we can see it operate within the realm of housing. Think about widespread housing insecurity and how rents are going through the roof. And this is due to you know, a highly <clears throat> marketized model where people see housing as a financial vehicle and not as a, uh, a use of shelter. So I think inevitably we come up against these bigger questions of what is capitalism? Do we think it works particularly well? What might make it work better? And in fact, which is my view, what might we replace it with? Yeah. And, and, and what do you see as driving that replacement? You know, you talk about maybe local, uh, local communities putting together their own cooperative internet service providers or perhaps these small experiments with new ways to bring these internet services online in a more democratic way, them getting a stronger foothold. Uh, but these all seem like very small models when we compare them to the, the giant tech companies that have more or less taken over the uh, internet space. Uh, how do we get there from here? That's a great question. And it's always the question with any project of social change. How do we get from here to there? And the answer is always a very nonlinear one, which is not particularly satisfying. Mm. I think in the case of the internet, it's true, as you said, that the internet is global. It's inhabited and indeed controlled by these very large multinational companies. That's true, of course, but the internet exists at a multiple at multiple scales. And the fact that the internet indeed has a local scale does give us a surface area for a number of interventions that are actually fairly low cost, fairly feasible. Mm. I'm not a localist. You know, I'm not someone who says small is beautiful. We only need to think at the local level. If you want to transform the internet, you can't just think at the local level because the internet is not just local, right? It exists at, all, at these different scales. It consists of all these deeper networks that stitch the various scales together. But the local is a place where you can make relatively low-cost interventions and crucially develop experiments that in turn expand people's horizon of what is politically possible. The community network is important not just because it provides better service at lower cost, not just because it enables community members to participate in decisions about internet infrastructure, but because it provides a different model of how we could organize the internet. It denaturalizes this world of Comcasts and Facebooks and Mark Zuckerbergs and so on. So much of the work one has to do as an organizer is change people's perception of what is possible. And that is something you could do at the local level, particularly these days when action at the national level feels blocked. 
Yeah. Well, we started on that point, and let's end on that point, this notion of expanding the imagination for what the Internet could be. For anybody out there that is maybe interested in these ideas but has their skepticism or, or can't quite picture it, what are, what are you hoping that your book and this conversation might spark? Where, where are you hoping people will look? How are you hoping they might expand that imagination? I think, honestly, if people took one thing away from the book, it doesn't have to be agreeing with me about... Uh, really any of the arguments I make, or they could say that my vision for a deprivatized internet is completely infeasible. That's totally fine. I think you can you could do all of that and still take something away from the book, which is there was nothing inevitable about the internet that we know today, that it was a series of choices, and those choices could have gone differently. I think if I could simply denaturalize the internet of today and give people a sense of the broader possibilities that exist, even if they don't agree with me about which possibilities to prefer, then I think I will have done my job. All right, that's an excellent place to end it. We have been speaking with Ben Tarnoff, once again, a writer and a co-founder of Logic Magazine. One last time, his new book is Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. Ben Tarnoff, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 